seated. As you're seated, you take out or turn on your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 9. That's where we're going to land in a few minutes. I want to jump right in. My wife is the artist in our family, but I do love works of art. I especially love sculptures that have been created by a master craftsman. Perhaps that's because the Bible talks of us as being clay in the hands of a potter. And I, I look at my life and I, I, I keep wondering, God, when are you going to make a masterpiece out of me? Maybe that's how you feel as well. But the truth is, according to God's Word in the book of Ephesians, we are God's poema. We are God's poem. We are His masterpiece. That is who we are. I've had the privilege on several occasions to visit Rodin's Museum or Rodin's Garden in the city of Paris. It's one of my favorite things to do. By God's grace, I'll be there again next month with a group from our church. You may be familiar with this sculptor because of one of his most well-known works of art called The Thinker. The Thinker. You can go into Rodin's Garden and you can see this masterpiece, this incredible picture, this sculpture that takes up so much of the space there. Another one of his works of art is called The Hand of God. I love this. It's said that in this sculpture, he's really shouting out to the master sculptor, Michelangelo. And he's envisioning the hand of God, perhaps, as he's creating from the dust, Adam. The truth is, the hand of God creates all that is. I think of that sculptor, and I think about the hand of God. And I think about the questions I have about the hand of God. Do you ever stop to think about the hand of God? Why he chooses to move where he does? Why does it seem that he touches some people in the way that he does? I've lived all of my life around the things of God, so there's no mistake that it's unusual. But sometimes God will just show up and impact an individual's life in such a way it's so clearly God. And you wonder, why them, Lord? Or or perhaps God will move in a church and, and you'll see this church begin to grow and see the things of God manifest in a mighty way. And, and as a pastor, you may look at the things you're doing and say, we're doing the same things. Why there, God? Or let's make it more personal. Maybe you've seen someone blessed with affluence or success or health. And you look at your life and you see all those things are missing. And you say, why there, God? Why them? What we're really saying, though, is why not me? Our our world has taken attention in recent days as the hand of God began to move again on a college campus, Asbury University in Kentucky. A move of God took place there in 1970. That move sparked God's movement around our country, which eventually landed at Azusa Pacific University on the West Coast, and we began to see what is now known as the Jesus Movement. Hippies began to come to Christ and were changed in massive numbers, and many of the great Spiritual leaders and evangelists and pastors of this generation that are now nearing the end of their lives and their ministries came to Christ in that movement. And here's what we learned when that great revival broke out. Much of the existing church was not ready. 
we weren't open to those kinds of people inside our walls. We didn't like their music and the way they acted. It, it seemed unkempt. It, it seemed disorganized. It, it seemed perhaps maybe this was not of God. And, and, and yet, that seems again to be what's happening at this college campus in Kentucky. My friend Bill Elliff visited Asbury earlier this week, and one of his local news stations decided to report on what's going on there. I want you to watch this short video. Arkansas, driving hours away to a college campus in Kentucky just to witness what they say is a miracle in the works. You may have seen it in the national headlines or maybe on social media. It's called the Asbury Revival. Our Samantha Boyd spoke with several from here in Little Rock who made the trip this week to see what this is all about. And Samantha, this is literally just taken off. Yeah, Kevin, it certainly has. This revival has brought in people from all over the world, but it started small with just a few students wanting to pray and worship after a chapel service at Asbury University. The people I talked to say that's the beauty of it all. It started out ordinary, but it's having an impact unlike anything they've ever seen. Real Christianity, people are drawn to that like crazy. It, it changes your life. What began as a mandatory chapel service at Asbury University in Kentucky more than a week ago. It very well could accelerate into the next great awakening in our nation. Has turned into a massive movement viral on social media and making national news. Arkansas pastor Bill Elliff just went last week to see it all firsthand. It's not crazy. It's not weird. It's just sweet and pure. For 24 hours a day, for nine days straight, people from all over the world have gathered together in that small Kentucky town to pray, worship, listen to ordinary people's testimonies, and read scripture. It doesn't make sense why people would be coming to what it is, other than it has to be God moving in some very unusual way. Catherine Mack, Jack McFessel, and David Legg are there together now coming from Arkansas. Thousands of people lined up to get into the chapel and then all the overflow places are all full. It was caught an inter international attention of many people who are hungering for something similar in, in their own nation. Leg is originally from Ireland. He says the revival is spreading to his home territory. How do we get out of this? Do we have to go to Asbury? No, God's here. After decades of prayer, Elif believes that movement is coming right here to Arkansas. And we have cried out for 25 years, for a quarter of a decade, that God would send something like this to our city, to Central Arkansas. And I believe we're going to see it. You know. Elif says the last time he saw something like this was in the 70s with a spiritual awakening all over the country. He experienced it firsthand at Washtenaw Baptist University in Arkadelphia. This week he met with the president of OBU who's anxious to see it happen on campus. What moves the hand of God? I know this. I, I want the hand of God on my life. I want the hand of God on this ministry. I want the hand of God on my family. I want the hand of God on his church. And I believe in the book of Romans, in chapter 9, 
really the Apostle Paul is addressing the movement of the hand of God, that which we may not fully understand, but that which we can embrace. Now, I want to remind you very quickly uh, about what Romans is all about, because as a church, we've journeyed through this for many months. We're picking it back up in chapter 9, but we started in chapter 1. Do you remember that statement of the Apostle Paul in chapter 1? He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That's the desire of God, that we live our lives so full of faith that the gospel exudes from us. And like you heard in that news report, the, the burning gospel in us draws others to see the fire that is at work within us. But here's the problem. We don't start out that way naturally. In fact, in Romans 3, it says it's written, there is no one righteous, no, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. He goes on to say in verse 22, the righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short short of the glory of God and are all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came in Christ Jesus. So what happens? How do we go forward seeking to burn with the things of God, recognizing that on our own we are unrighteous? In Romans 5 it says, therefore since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Most of us who've gathered here have declared that we've been justified by faith. Because of our faith in Jesus Christ, God made it just as if we've never sinned. He gave us peace with God. How did he do that? Verse 8 told us, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the hope that we have to proclaim. Those of us who know Christ, that's the message we have for the world. That's why these seats should always be filled because we have news that transforms everybody regardless of what they've been through. But here's our problem. We're like the Apostle Paul. We're spiritually schizophrenic. You remember what he said in Romans 7? I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's a sin living in me that does it. So what do we do? How do we go forward? How do we even cry out for the hand of God to move in our life? We thank God for Romans 8, which says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Aren't you thankful for that truth, church? Why? It says in verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And to Him we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. In the same way. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. It says in verse 26, we do not know what we ought to pray, 
But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. What then shall we say in response of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No, it says in verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that brings us to three of the most challenging chapters in all of the Bible. Romans 9, 10, and 11. Most pastors try to figure out ways to skip over these chapters. It's easy to preach Romans 8. It begins with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. I mean, this is just exciting, encouraging, and good news. But the truths of Romans 9 and 10 and 11, they call tension in our soul. I remind you, from the beginning, we've learned that Romans is a book about our salvation. It's called a book of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. And these chapters are what go to the heart of how we are saved. And and as a result, there's been a lot of confusion and a lot of debate and a lot of time spent up here in our heads just trying to think through and often fight through what these verses mean. So as a result, church leaders and church people have disagreed and argued and debated these chapters for a long time, at least since the fourth century. So here's what I want you to understand. I'm not even the smartest guy in the room. I'm probably not going to answer all your questions today. I'm certainly not going to resolve what has been a tension for thousands of years. But I do want to help you embrace the tension. I want to take you to the chapter we'll end on in a couple weeks, Romans 11. Romans 11 and verse 33, listen to the word of God. It says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, his path beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God? Who should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. What is Paul saying in Romans 11? He's saying, what moves the hand of God? How does this whole thing work? Who are we? And as I read those verses, some things jump out that if I were you, I would jot down just to guide our discussion as we seek the wisdom of the Lord. Number one, it's okay to express that some things are impossible to understand. You okay with that? Paul says, how unsearchable. One translation literally says, how impossible. I I want to acknowledge that I serve a God that is bigger than me. I'm okay not having him completely figured out. I don't have to put my God in a box. And so that's where I'm going to start from that place of understanding. 
And the reason is, is because of what it says next. Some things don't need to be understood. Did, did you know for a lot of years, scientists thought the whole universe revolved around the earth? And then they figured out, ah, there's a lot bigger universe and a lot more universes. And, oh, we may have gotten this thing wrong. Well, I've noticed a lot of people think the earth revolves around them. And so I'm here to tell you, according to God's word, what we just read, that's not the case. And you don't have to be the one who solves all the problems in the world. Some things are okay not being understood. But thirdly, one thing we understand is that everything was created to point to God, to give him glory. Everything was created, including you, to give God glory. So as I seek the face of God and I cry out for the hand of God to move in my life, what I want is that to take place in such a way that he receives greater glory. I want my faith understanding, and I, I want the way that I live out these truths that I've studied in God's Word, and I want this knowledge that I've uh, obtained. I want it to reflect my desire to give God glory. So what's the big picture in, in these verses? We're going to just read through really quickly, and I'm going to make a couple of comments about Here's the big picture. According to Scripture, God must choose us to be a part of his family. That's just the way it is. In fact, Jesus gave us a clue into that when he looked at his disciples and he said, time out, guys. I want to make sure you understand, you didn't choose me. I chose you. But that was not new. That's the way God talked to his people all throughout the Old Testament. They were his chosen ones. He does the choosing. But what makes that confusing? If that's all Scripture said, that would be easy, right? We would understand the hand of God just kind of floats through existence and touches whatever he wants to and doesn't have anything to do with us. But this passage also teaches that we must choose God if we're to be a part of his family. He has authority, but we have responsibility. And then we have tension. Because we think, how, do, how does that work? How do we embrace this God who is sovereign, who knows all that is, but says that he created us in his image with this freedom of will to make choices that impact our destiny? Does that mean that through our prayers, we can cry out and we can move the hand of God? Professor J. Robertson McQuilkin said it's, e it's easier to go to a consistent extreme than to stay in the center of biblical tension. And, and that's what a lot of people do on this issue and others. They go to extremes. And, and so you have folks that really want to fight about this because they think they've got it all figured out. And, and let me just tell you some of the dangers of those two extremes. If, if this is entirely just about us, if this is just a free will choice, what does that say? Well, it places the burden of salvation holy on me, that I'm completely responsible for whether or not I'm going to spend forever with God in heaven. Secondly, it denies or minimizes my depravity. It takes away those verses we've already read in Romans that says, there's not one righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It even suggests necessarily that we can lose our salvation. Because if there's something I can do to earn it, there necessarily must be something I can do to lose it. Which, by the way, in our church, just so that you know, 
we hold to that doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. We, we believe, as Paul says in the book of Ephesians, when the Holy Spirit of God grips you, when Christ comes into your life, he seals you until that day of redemption. You're held tight in that righteous right hand of God. But another thing that this does, it invariably leads to legalism. Because if it's, in, if it's up to me, then my goodness, I better get this right. And so those of us that tend to believe that way, we become legalistic not only toward ourselves but toward others. But what about the other extreme? If I go the other extreme and humanity plays no part, then the liability for condemnation is solely on God. What kind of God is that? Is he a God of love at all that he would condemn some to hell for eternity? Maybe God is culpable for evil. Did he create this whole thing just to confuse us? Do we not have any stake in this? Are we just robots? And so invariably this leads not to legalism but to fatalism and inaction. Because we begin to think it, it doesn't matter what we do. So I want to look at this as we go through this passage in Romans 9, just for a few minutes. I want to ask four questions and then give you a few statements of application in our lives. How do we manage these truths in tension? And what does that mean about the hand of God? Romans 9, beginning in verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. So Here's what I just want to say before we blow past that verse. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, what we believe and teach is that the Holy Spirit of God has indwelt you. As a result of that, that means when you are encountered with truth and falsehood, the Holy Spirit of God in you, God in you, either bears witness with the truth or shouts out in your inner being, alert, this is not true. And so you have that ability if you're a follower of Christ. Now, how do you develop that? You've gotten into God's Word. You're seeking to grow. You understand the Scriptures. You spend time with Him in prayer. But as a result of that, when you're in a church and you're hearing things that are taught that are not of God, you should hear that, alert! Because the Holy Spirit of God in you does not bear witness with that. And when you begin to see God move, oh, you should just feel an inner urge. So when I begin to see God moving and, and when I see students and adults from across the country lining up on sidewalks to get into a building in, in Wilmore, Kentucky, man, I, I want to get there. I want to be a part of that. I, I just want to fan the flames because my spirit bears witness that God is doing something there. And so this is not overly complicated, folks. You don't have to have a theology degree. You don't have to be a PhD in anything to know that the Bible tells you that God will speak into your life and bear witness to the truth. So he goes on to say, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sonship. Theirs is divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. From them is traced the human, the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. What is he saying? Man, I am emotionally evoked over the reality that those who are like me, those who are from my heritage, they've not all responded to the hope of Christ. 
Now, I'm going to end with this in a moment, but we should learn something from Paul. The salvation of other people should be something that moves the emotions in us. So I want to be very clear. If you're a follower of Christ, if you've come to that place where you understood that God chose you and in response you chose Jesus Christ, that should have been an emotional thing in your life. Not just emotional, but it certainly shouldn't have been less than emotional, right? You realize God picks you up. He turns you around. He places your feet on solid ground. He changes you. He snatched you out of that highway to hell and put you on a pathway to heaven. That should move you. But after that's moved you, it should burden you about those in your corner of the world who don't have that same pathway. And so Paul says it does. He, he says, I don't understand. I mean, all of my peers, all these other Jewish people that have re rejected Christ, my heart yearns for them. If I could trade places with them, I would. A parent understands that, don't we? You see a child making a choice that's not the right choice. They're dishonoring God. They're rebelling against him. They're a prodigal. You'd say, oh, if I could just take away their pain, if I could step in their spot. And then he lists, I'm not going to go through these, but he lists eight things that are benefits, eight reasons the Jewish people should understand that Jesus is the hope, that he's the Messiah. But he says they don't. And so then he addresses these four questions that probably Jews and Gentiles alike are dealing with. How does the hand of God impact the salvation of individuals? So let's just jump in. Four questions about the hand of God. Number one, he says, has God failed? So in the Old Testament, again, you, you've been maybe to one Sunday school class or to vacation Bible school, and you've, you've heard this. God chose the children of Israel. He began a covenant relationship with Abraham. We just sang about that as we worshiped together this morning. God covenanted with his people. Now, since all of them did not follow Jesus in his ultimate plan, does that mean that God failed? Are the promises of God true? Can he be trusted? That's what Paul's addressing. Look at it, beginning in verse 6. It's not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not because they are his descendants are all they Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the physical by phys the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it's the children by the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Now, let me just stop there. We could spend a lot of time unpacking this. But what is he saying? This is not something that takes place just because of physical birth. It has always been about a promised relationship with God. So if it was not just by physical birth for the Jewish people, guess what that means? It's not just by physical birth for your Baptist children or grandchildren. Occasionally I'll come in contact with someone and I would talk to them about their faith and I would say, hey, if you're standing before God in heaven and he would say, why, why should I let you in? What would you say? And they may say something like this. Well, my, my granddaddy was a Methodist preacher. Or, or my uncle was a deacon out at the Baptist church. Or, or my mama was in the church every time the doors were open. And it's in those moments that I try to take a deep breath and be reserved, but I want to say, I didn't ask about your granddaddy or your uncle or your mama. I'm asking about you. 
The Apostle Paul is saying, hey, I want you to understand the promises of God have not failed because from the beginning, God has done what he promised all the way back to Abraham and Sarah. Remember when he said, in a year, I'm going to send someone and you're going to have a child even though you're an old man and she's an old woman? And God did exactly that. He's always related to people through his promise. Go down to verse 10. He says, not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, just as it's written, Jacob I loved and Esau I've hated. And man, people have looked at that last verse and debated that and used that as kind of a, a bully rod and, and, and use it just to confuse folks. And, and what was Paul saying? What is the Holy Spirit saying to us? Well, he's saying, does God know all that's going to happen? Absolutely. He's sovereign. It's like I say to you often, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? He knows exactly how things are going to unfold. That doesn't mean he's failed in his promises. Oh, we could spend so much more time, but let me just suffice it to say, has God failed? And the answer is no. Number two, is God fair? Is God fair? Look at verse 14. What shall then we say? Is, is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Is God fair? Well, first of all, let me just say, um, fair is not in the Bible. Fair is not a doctrine. Fair is not a character trait of God. So really what Paul was asking, is God just? Does he always do what is right? And what's his answer? Sure he does. Of course he does. He talks about mercy. He talks about God's compassion. And, and really what he's saying is, I want you to think for a second. Are you suggesting that if, if you were in charge, if it was your hand and not the hand of God, you would be more merciful than he was? That, that you would make better decisions than he does? That your purposes would prevail in a better way than his purposes? No. He says, is God fair? That's the wrong question. That's the wrong question. God is just. I just want to keep moving real quickly. So does that mean is the whole thing fixed? Is the whole thing fixed? Like is the fix in? I mean, does it matter what we do? That's really the issue, isn't it? Does it matter? Can I cry out to God for my mother or my father or my son or my daughter or my coworker or my neighbor? Can I cry out to God for revival? Will he hear? Does it matter? Or is this whole thing fixed? Look at verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who's able to resist his will? 
So all throughout this, Paul's just answering these objections that he hears being asked. So some of you are saying, this whole thing's fixed, isn't it? Why, why, why do we have to do anything if God's already going to just bring about his will? But who are you, a human being to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us? whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved, the one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. He goes on to quote Isaiah. But what is he saying? He's making no mistake Our God is sovereign. This doctrine of election, it's a part of who he is. He knows what is taking place. We have to embrace that, but we don't have to fully understand it. It's interesting. It's hard to find out who originally said this, whether it was Donald Gray Barnhouse or whether it was Charles Haddon Spurgeon or whether it was Dwight L. Moody. It's been attributed to all of them, but, but it's been said, imagine that one day you're walking through the portals of heaven, and, and on one side as you're walking in, you see that verse from the book of the Revelation, and it says, whosoever will may come, and you walk through into heaven And then as you glance back, you see on the other side that sign that says chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Are they both true? Yes. Do I understand how they both work together? No. Does God in his providence give us the opportunity to respond to his choosing in our life? Yes. And he gives examples of this in this passage. He gives the example, he turns us back to Exodus and he talks about the Pharaoh. Did you catch that? He said, did the Pharaoh not harden his heart? Now this is interesting because eventually in that account, remember there were a lot of plagues. God worked a lot to get the children of Israel out of Egypt. Eventually, it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But you know what it says in the beginning? Pharaoh hardened his heart. You can't get away from Scripture that God gives us the opportunity to respond to what he's doing. His authority does not negate our responsibility. So we embrace the mystery. Is the whole thing fixed? No. One last question. Is God faithful? Is God faithful? What do you think, church? Yeah. Listen to Romans 9, verse 30. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not obtained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it's written, see, I lay a stone in Zion that causes people to stumble on a rock that makes them fall. The one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Now, 
I've been reading from the New International Version, that translation of Scripture. There are different translations. There are also paraphrases of Scripture that kind of put it in our modern language. I, I try to read through a lot of these as I study a passage. And so I was reading through this in the message. I, I want you to hear from this paraphrase paraphrase of scripture how this passage is described. How can we sum this up? That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to take one of the most complex doctrines (laughs) that's dealt with in scripture and sum it up in just a few minutes. How can we sum it up? This is how the message puts beginning in verse 30. All those people who didn't seem interested in what God was doing actually embraced what God was doing as he straightened out their lives. And Israel, who seemed so interested in reading and talking about what God was doing, missed it. How could they miss it? Because instead of trusting God, they took over. They were absorbed in what they themselves were doing. They were so absorbed in their God projects that they didn't notice God right in front of them like a huge rock in the middle of the road. And so they stumbled into him and went sprawling. Isaiah, again, gives us the metaphor for pulling this together. Careful, I've put a huge stone on the road to Mount Zion. A stone you can't get around, but the stone is me. If you're looking for me, you'll find me on the way, not in the way. What's Paul saying? There's a way to mess this thing up. You can make it all about you and think it's all about what you do, and you'll miss out. On what God has created you for. But when you respond to him in faith. He will always. 100% of the time. Without doubt. Be faithful. Is God faithful? Say it together church. Yes. Yes. So what's our response? Man. David Platt is a great teacher of the scriptures. And he looked at this passage of scripture and he said, you know, really in Romans 9, there are three things we should see. Number one, we should long for the salvation of others like Paul did. Man, I would give anything if I could trade places. I'm grieved because these Jews don't know Jesus. Number two, we should lean on the faithfulness of God we got to trust him. You you have to decide, do I trust the hand of God? And then we should live for the glory of God. We should live our lives in such a way that should the hand of God choose to rest on us, whether that be for salvation or whether that be for revival or whatever that be, that we are quick to give him glory. Now, let me apply this with us before we pray. What are some takeaways from this deep passage of Scripture? Number one, you can't miss this. Those of us in God's family should be burdened about those who are not in God's family. There are going to be some things in Scripture you may never understand. I know that's the case for me. I'm just not the sharpest tool in the shed. But there's some things you need to understand. And one of those is that God expects us to be burdened for those that don't yet know him. So I want to ask you something today. 
in the context of this season of revival around our world? Who's your one? Who's that one person in in your little corner of the world that you're consistently and constantly praying for, that they would come to saving faith in the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Is it a son, a daughter, a mother, a father, a brother, a sister? Is it a coworker, a classmate? Write that name down and, and make it an effort to regularly take that person before God. Because here's what I believe. As you cry out to God, you can move the hand of God. Number two, those of us who think we are in God's family probably should evaluate, are you in God's family? My friend Dennis is here with us today all the way from England. And I, I love what he and a, another friend of mine, John, have, have said together. They've, they've said that a lot of us are quick to say yes to God. But we've not yet joined him in his mission. And, and so you begin to ask, is it that simple? Is this just about life insurance? Can, can I really follow after him if I don't begin to look to him and rely on his hand in my life? Paul was making it clear, not everybody who knows about the things of God is a child of God. Number three, those who desire to be a part of the family of God should always respond to him in faith. So, if you are a part of the family of God, I think one of your responses today is, God, what faith action are you calling me to take? Where are you calling me to move out and step out in faith? And it could be a variety of things. Is it to lead out spiritually in your marriage or as a parent? It, it could be in your workplace to, to stop being a covert agent and let people see that you have a love relationship with Jesus Christ. It, it may be in the classroom. It may be in your neighborhood. It may be here in the church. It may be about some of those disciplines to spend time in his word or, or to be passionate about prayer or to worship him more freely or, or to give as a good steward. Where is he asking you to step out in faith? Because what this passage teaches, the truths that are intention, man, God's sovereign. He's going to do as he wills. He rules and reigns. And while we cannot deny God's authority, we must not diminish our responsibility. It said that John Piper, when he was 34 years old, was a college professor and he was studying this passage of Scripture, Romans chapter 9. And he said it's as if the Lord spoke to him and said, I will not simply be analyzed. I must be adored. I will not simply be pondered. I want to be proclaimed. My sovereignty is not simply to be scrutinized. It is to be heralded. Let me put all that in my words. The right response to our wonder about God is always our worship of God. So I would ask you, 
What is the hand of God doing in and around you? When I think about this passage of Scripture, sure, I think about things that I still don't understand. I think about how much bigger my God is than me. I think about my desires to see the hand of God move. And then I think, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. Oh Lord, have your way with us. Would you bow your heads with me? Man, I wrestled with God through this passage this week. And as you could tell, part of my end resolve was just to cover you up with his words. Because his words never fail. Mine often do. Here's what I know. The one who is sovereign over all that is desires that you respond in faith. And for those of us who have responded in faith already through salvation in Jesus Christ, he, he desires that we would live out in faith. He desires that we would cry out that the hand of God might move. He desires that we would be open to whatever he wants to form and fashion in our lives. So we're going to worship in these next few moments and There'll be pastors from our church that are standing here. If you want to pray with someone, as always, kind of the front of the church will be like a prayer altar for you. If you just want to come and pray, you can remain in your seats. You can just stand and worship. But my prayer is simple. Would you respond to what the hand of God is doing in your life? Now, somebody's here today and you've never begun a relationship with Jesus Christ. You say, how do I know if I'm one of the elect, if I'm one of the one he's chose? If you've heard these words, guess what? I believe you're one of those he's chosen. And so now you have an opportunity to respond to his authority. You have an opportunity to say, yes, God, having been chosen by you, I, I choose to follow you, Jesus. And if that's the desire of your heart, here's what I'm going to ask. As we begin to sing, as our team begins to lead us in worship, I'm going to ask you just to stand up where you are, to step out, and to come take the hand of one of our pastors who are standing here and simply say this. You may not even understand what these words mean in the moment, but simply say this. I need to be saved. And one of us will talk to you about what that means. So, Father... In the name of Jesus, I just pray that you would begin to move, that you would begin to work, that you would begin to act in our lives, in our midst in such a way that we would feel the freedom to respond obediently to your authority. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Let's worship him.